Good morning, everyone. Oh, there's so few of us, we're going to have to say that again. Come on. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. See, now it sounds like there's a lot of people here and everyone at home just got fooled about it. Ah, excellent, excellent. Uh, so we're in the book of Judges, and finally this week we get to start seeing the real cycle of individuals who are stepping up and saving Israel. The first couple chapters has just been a summary of what we're looking at, and today we're going to see three examples in front of us on how God delivers his people from their own self-inflicted sin and agony. None of these things that Israel is going through is because God just simply wanted to punish them for some reason or make life hard for them for some reason. It's because of their own actions that led them into this sinful habit. And as we begin to read this, since we're really starting on the new section here in chapter 3, I want to quickly remind us of how we approach historical records in Scripture. Because what's happening between now and the end of chapter 21 in the book of Judges, it's a history book. It's a history lesson. It's not teaching. So when we go to the Gospels and we see Jesus saying something, thus says the Lord, or truly, truly, I say to you, those are examples of teaching portions of Scripture. Like all the epistles are teaching portions of Scripture. When we come to historical books, they do teach us. But remember, they're historical records of what happened. And so not, we don't always get a commentary on why this happened or why this happened or, or what happened or what's God's judgment on it. Sometimes God doesn't have any um, extra things to say about the event that takes place. He just simply records for us, this is what happened. So he may or may not give um, credence or... Uh, he may or may not approve of the historical event that took place, but his goal in the historical books is to show us the record of what took place. It's our responsibility, as we search and we read these historical events, to take in context the rest of Scripture, and then we can make a moral judgment and say, all right, I see why this happened, and even though this happened historically, we know that we should not repeat this. Or maybe we have other Scripture verses that say, yes, we do repeat that historical event. But just because Scripture records it, it doesn't automatically mean that's how we're to behave and that's how we're to act. It's simply recording for us, and it's our responsibility to search the rest of Scripture to find out, is this indeed how we're to morally act with one another? So as we approach that, we're going to get started right away in the first section of this in Judges chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, and we're going to meet up with an old friend, Othniel. Who remembers Othniel from chapter 1? Yeah, the, the name is somewhat familiar. It happens here and there. Uh, Othniel was the guy who came to Caleb's aid and called. Caleb said, hey, whoever takes this land of Ephraim for me, I'm going to give you what? My daughter in marriage. It just so happened that they were cousins. Uh, but back then it didn't matter as much as it definitely matters today. Uh, so let's start in verse 7 of chapter 3, and I'm going to read through verse 11, and then we'll go back and make some commentary on the actions here. In verse 7 of chapter 3 of Judges, we read, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot their God and served the Baals and Ashereths. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishthiam, king of Aram, um, Aram Naharim, I guess, uh, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. 
But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othanel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, who saved them, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushah uh, Rishhethim, king of Aram, to the hands of Othnel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othnel, the son of Kenaz, died. Earlier this morning, we sang that song, um, uh, Come Thou Fount, right? We sang that song, Come Thou Fount, a very blessing. And there is a phrase in there that you probably sang without, well, maybe you did. Maybe you sang it with real conviction. It's that phrase that talks about, my heart is prone to wander. My heart is prone to wander. Has your heart ever wandered from following and listening to God? Absolutely. If you didn't raise your hand, I'm raising it for you because it has. You see, our hearts are indeed prone to wander until we have that glorious day where we're removed from this world and we see Jesus as he truly is. Yes, that day of glorification. But until that moment, temptations do sneak in and those temptations can overpower us and we can wander from the faith that we were bold to declare and stand for. And our hearts can drift. And all of a sudden we find ourselves living like the Israelites who compromised in some part of their life. And that small little compromise, which didn't matter anything at the time, all of a sudden became a snowball effect, and we find ourselves far from God. We find ourselves, God is not hearing us. We're not praying. We're not doing the spiritual disciplines. And we are dry spiritually. Not because God has left us or forsook us. He never does. But because our heart wandered. And that is exactly what happened to the Israelites. Small little steps of compromise that led to great consequences. Verse 7 is super scary. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. How? How did they do evil in God's eyes? They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and Ashereths. They entered into a life of idolatry. Oh, that was Israelite, Israel's problem when they first left the land of Egypt. It didn't happen more than a month after they left the land of Egypt that they were at the Mount Sinai, and God is giving Moses his law. And he writes it down on tablets. And the Israelites at the bottom of the valley, looking up to Mount Sinai, they saw a cloud, and they saw lightning and flashes of sound, or they heard flashes of sound. And it was just... God was present uniquely at that moment. And what did the Israelites do in response to that? What was their actions? They gathered all the gold and precious metals they had, and they made a calf, a golden calf, and they worshipped it and sacrificed to an idol. And they were right in front of the, of the mountain where God was present visibly and audibly. And they went headlong into idolatry right then and there. If it can happen to them, and it happens to these Israelites who saw God's physical miracles in front of them, how prone our own hearts are to wander. 
And so God gives them over to that sin and brings a man whose name is double-cursed. That's what Christian means, the double-cursed man. Obviously, he's an evil, wicked individual who just simply (laughs) rules them with an iron fist. Now, Cushion happens to be the younger brother of someone we've already met in Scripture, the son of Ham. He is one of Canaan's brothers. And so that family destruction has gone through the entire family tree to where this guy now enslaves the Israelites for eight years. But in that moment of utter desperation, in that moment where they felt all was lost, They did the right thing. They did the right thing. They cried out to God saying, help. Now, was it truly spiritual? Could be. We know that it was physical. They were tired of being slaves. They were tired of being punished. They were tired of being ruled. And they longed for God. And they did the right thing. They cried out to God and said, help. It is never a bad thing. When you find yourself far from God, when you find yourself spiritually dry, when you find yourself overwhelmed, when you find yourself enslaved to a sin, it is never wrong to be humble and say, Lord, save me. Help. And a heart that pours out to God, help, 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 is a heart that is humbled. It is a heart that is not full of pride. It is not a heart full of self-righteousness. It is a heart that is broken. And God says, I take that broken and contrite heart and I mend it. I fill it with grace and mercy and tenderness and love. Inexpressible. A love that cannot be simply defined by words. It's more than an emotion. It is a fulfilled feeling of having God's attention placed upon you personally. It is a deep love. And while they were slaves for eight years, God heard their cry, and as his answer is, he sends a deliverer. Now, every one of these judges that we will see, and everyone actually in the Old Testament, all the kings, all the prophets, were examples of what Christ would fulfill later on. We don't need to look to a human Uh, Savior at this moment. We don't need to look to a human prophet at this moment for help in our lives with our sin, with our struggles. We look to Christ, the fulfillment, the perfect king, the perfect judge, the perfect prophet. And that's why Christ is called our prophet, priest, and king, because he fulfills all those roles in saving us, leading us, and teaching us. But God raises up this man, and this man has great victory. He rallies the troops, and this area uh, is, is just simply a, a small little area, kind of real northwest of town. It's insignificant in the rest of Israel's history, but Othniel does an amazing job by following God's commands and saves Israel. And Israel, for 40 years, that's a long stretch of time for them during this time of the book of Judges, they served God. They loved God. They honored God. They fulfilled God's commands. They tore down the idols. They stopped worshiping false gods. And they were sold to God. And for 40 years, this land had tremendous peace. Tremendous peace. 
Jesus warns us of something, teaches us of something in Matthew chapter 6 during the Sermon on the Mount. And he has this little phrase, in, or this verse that he talks about in Matthew 6, verse 24, where he says, you cannot serve two masters. Now he's talking about idolatry. You cannot serve two masters. And he talks about, well, you can't serve money and you can't serve God. Now, there's nothing wrong in having money. He's not talking about, uh, you know, that it's wrong to be rich or sinful to be rich. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about where do I have my faith and confidence? Is it in my wealth and possessions or is it in God? Because Jesus says you can't have both in front of you. You can't worship both. You can't depend upon both. You can't love both. You're either going to love one and hate the other or love the other and hate the one. You have to make a choice. Whom do I serve? Who do I find my satisfaction with? Who do I hope in? Who do I dream for? Who do I want to be next to? And Jesus says the obvious answer is God. Anything else is idolatry. The number of times, in the Old Testament especially, that God's people, the Israelites, went astray when they went headlong into sin, almost every time you can chart back to is because they worshiped the different God. They worshiped an idol. And I think Jesus is absolutely correct when he says you can't worship both. You can't worship both God and money. He d because he realizes that there's a change in the culture. We're setting up an idol, a new stone statue to worship, isn't going to be what we're really struggling with. What we struggle with is indeed that love of money. It may be sports. It may be recreation. It may be wealth. It may be health. It may be beauty. It may be fashion. It's usually material stuff that we figure is so important, I need to hold on to it, and I know God will never ask me to let go of it. Well, God very well may ask you to let go of it. And a true test of, is there idolatry in my heart, is how quickly, when God commands you and says, with a small little prompting, give that up, how willing are you to do it, is a great sign of how far our heart has wandered from God as the object of our soul, worship, and affection. Even more so, God is more important to us than even family, even country, even amendments and the Constitution. God is far more beautiful and lasting than anything this world has to offer, ever. There is nothing that you can mention before God that says he's more, or that is more important than him. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And when we start to compromise, we start to slide, and eventually we're going to find ourselves at that breaking point. Do I cry out to God? Or do I dig in my heels and stay unrepentant? Because when you do, misery follows. So Othniel brings great victory. For 40 years, he is on top of the game, and the people follow him. But the moment he dies, the moment that godly leadership ceases to be an example in front of their eyes, calling them to repentance, calling them to faithfulness, they slide right back into the habit of false gods. 
And we have a story uh, recorded for us in Judges 3, starting in verse 12, going all the way almost to the end of the chapter, verse 30, one big section about Ehud. Ehud and his rather large target. Rather large target. So let's look at that in um, Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12. I'll read a couple verses, and then we'll talk about it and continue reading. It's one of my grossest favorite stories in Scripture, because it is indeed gross, but in a really cool way where you want to look at it, but you know it's gross, and you look at it, and you go, oh, that's gross, but yay, teen, kind of gross. And uh, if you haven't heard this story in a long time, um, I think you're going to agree with me. It's one of those, you don't want to look at it, but you do. It's, oh, it's really cool, but gross. So, verse 12, again, the Israelites, oh, again, that cycle, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of God. Now, it doesn't tell us what evil they did, but I can pretty much bet had something to do with forgetting God as the number one priority in their life and substituting it for something else. Compromise, especially with the culture. So they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, and just so you know, that's never good commentary for God to give you, right? You do not want the commentary in your life to start with, oh, they did evil in the eyes of God. It really is not. You want God to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You never want the return of, oh, they did evil in my eyes, and then I did this, because this is what happens. And because they did evil in uh, the sight of the Lord, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Uh, getting the Amorites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho. Uh, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years little bit of history, Moab and the Amorites. Uh, Moab and Ammon were brothers, and uh, they are the brothers of two sisters, uh, the two sisters who were daughters of Lot. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? Lot, uh, Abraham rescued him from Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. And in Genesis 19, when Lot's family was fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they end up doing what they usually do, and that's like farming or shepherding or something. Well, whatever. They're, they're off by themselves, saved from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the two daughters, Lot's daughters, um, reasoned in their own heart and mind uh, and realized that if they don't have children, uh, no one's going to ever be able to take care of them, Okay. And uh, so, of course, naturally, their answer is what? And this is not a pleasant answer. Their answer is, well, tell you what, let's, uh, let's get Dad drunk, and I'll sleep with him tonight, get him drunk again, and you sleep with him tomorrow night, and maybe we'll have kids. Oh, there is so much wrong in that. I mean, Lot, you shouldn't be getting drunk. And sisters, daughters of Lot, you know that that's not the way to get children. But they do. They, have, they both have sons. One's Moab, one's Amorite. And um, they grow up to be fine young men that are strapping, you know, warriors for the other team, not for God. They totally reject God. 
no real big surprise on my part. I mean, look at who their moms were, how they raised them. Uh, no morals in their system, even though probably a month earlier they saw God save them from Sodom and Gomorrah. And even that miraculous act of salvation, they forgot it because they were filled with fear of what might happen to them, and it led them into sinful actions. Instead of saying, I don't know what I'm going to do for kids, God help, they decided to take it on themselves and find a human solution, and that human solution, hundreds of years later, brought judgment to the house of Israel and God's people. But Eglon knew that he couldn't overpower Israel himself, so he gathered up his neighbors. And the Amalekites were, um, uh, they were the grandchildren and offspring of Esau, another stellar character in the kingdom of God. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Isaac's kids? Well, Esau, the twin that didn't go so well, his grandkid turned out to be the uh, Amalekites. Uh, so no friend of Israel. And they took possession of Jericho. Now, about 30 or 40 years later, do you remember what happened? Or earlier, about, it could be 40 to 50 years um, earlier in history. Uh, what happened with Israel and Jericho? Because that was a pretty important story. Israel is just getting out of the wilderness, going to the promised land, led by Joshua. And Joshua asked God, how do we overcome this mighty city with these huge walls? And God says, walk around it, and it will crumble and blow your trumpets, and I will give it to you. And as crazy as that sounded, it worked. And the walls were destroyed. Israel walked in and took possession of the entire city, and it was theirs. But they didn't do what God had told them to do. Get rid of the inhabitants. Drive them out. Don't let them stay. If they stay, they will bring compromise, and you will forget me. Well, they leave the people there, they get stronger, they become allies, and they kick Israel out of Jericho and enslave them for 18 years. Continues in verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Right response. 18 years too late, but right response. Save us. And he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man the son of Jerah the Benjamite. Left-handed, super important in this story. Super important. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, who would have been in Jericho. So Ehud has tribute, which is basically forced taxes that you had to pay to the king so that he would not kill you, basically. Verse 16, now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which is about a foot and a half, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. Until we get to the rest of the story, the fact that he's left-handed, the fact that he has a sword, and the fact that he taped it to his right thigh probably doesn't register like really cool details, but in the art of assassination, it is incredibly important that he was left-handed. First of all, there weren't many left-handed warriors back then. And if you were a warrior, you had your sword attached to your left thigh so you could easily draw it. But the guy has it to his right thigh. No one would willingly draw their sword like this with their right hand. So he's already setting up the story that's kind of gross. 
Verse 17. So he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was, I'm not sure what your translation says, but mine says, he was a very fat man. And uh, in Hebrew, it says, he was a very fat man. That's, That's the translation. How fat is very fat? And that's not an opening line to a joke, but gotta be fat because of what happens next. Uh, All of this is kind of just giving us a tease for the event that's going to take place. So he presented a tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself, ah, the stone images are another term for idols. So Israel didn't even get rid of all the idols in the land, but went back to Gilgal, and he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. So the story is, um, Ehud takes the tribute, along with a whole bunch of other guys, delivers it to the king, presents it to him, and the king goes, great, and they begin to leave. And if we're looking at Calvary as Bethlehem, I mean as um, Jerusalem, Jericho, remember, is sort of in geographical terms at the intersection of Abriendo and 25, so kind of in that direction. They start walking from that direction north, okay? And they come across these stone statues, these idols, and all of a sudden Ehud turns back and goes to the king and says, hey, um, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. I think kings love secret messages. First of all, everybody likes secret messages, right? I mean, when someone says, hey, I got a secret I want to tell you, do you make time for them? Yes, you do. You want to know the secret message because... I mean, maybe something really good gossip, but a king having an enemy come to them and say, I have a secret message for you, oh good, I've got a spy on the other side. So you can already see the king's appetite is not only healthy for food, but it's healthy for gossip. And so the king said to his attendants, leave us. And so they all left. I can't help but think of Jabba the Hutt at this moment. All right? during all of his little examples in Star Wars, Jabba the Hutt right there, and, and hearing this juicy bit, the tidbit, and he kind of throws that floppy arm of his that's full of slime for whatever reason, and you know, knocks everybody over and says, get out of here, I want to hear the message. And so Ehud and Eglon are all along, all alone, and the message is about to be delivered. So Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message of God for you, a message from God. As the king rose from his seat, which might have been a tough chore for him, but he he wanted to get closer. The whole intent is that Eglon is baited into this trap. Ehud reached with his left hand, drew his sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle, remember this sword is 18 inches long at least, The handle sank um, and plunged it into his belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out into the porch. He shut the door of the upper room behind him and locked them. I'm guessing we all kind of visually understand what's happened here, right? Right? point of the story is Eglon 
was a very fat man. He was big enough for an 18-inch sword to just be covered up with his belly. Wow. Okay, so Ehud knows he needs to escape, so he locks the door. And after he had gone, verse 24, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. And they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. He's using the restroom. That's what they thought. And um, obviously, verse 25, they waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors to the room, they took a key and, and unlocked them, and there they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. Now, first of all, that's an amazing testimony to what happens to idols. They are on the floor, dead. They have no power to save. This man was not close to God. He was not a servant of God. He was on the floor, dead. This king of theirs, their lord that they served. Um, all intriguing stories, and why this has not been made into a movie yet. This is one of those you think could be one of those really good action movies of Ehud the assassin, getting into Eglon's inner chamber, and then just that CG scene of the blade going into the belly and the belly flapping over and him making the escape and everyone out the door going, are you still in there? Hello? Do you need anything? Is there... Okay. I mean, there's funny things happening in that. There's gross, gross things happening in that. But all along, it is God's hand using really graphic, weird events to make his point that he is the savior of his people when they cry out to him for help. He makes the escape, verse 26, and while they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to uh, Serah. Where he arrived there, he blew, when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills uh, with him leading them. Ephraim is sort of uh, just a little county area that you'd say of Israel, just one of the areas that God had given to uh, the son of Joseph, Ephraim, as inheritance. And it'd be sort of all of that, maybe like downtown itself in relationship to Jericho. So downtown area Pueblo in relationship to Jericho. And uh, uh, he blows the trumpet and that's a sign to the Israelites, it's time to rise up and go to war. And they went down from the hills with uh, Ehud leading them. And then we find out what happens in verse 28 through 30. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, and they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vicious and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. God gave Israel an incredible victory. There was an escape route out of Jericho through, I guess, more of a, of a wetland area, and Israel did not allow anyone to escape. And just so we realize that these weren't 10,000 weak people that they just cut down with the sword, these were vigorous valent warriors, that they were um, strong individuals. This was the elite of the Moabs. This wasn't just 
average farmers that they took advantage of. These were the troops that brought safety to that entire region they destroyed. God gave them into their hands. 10,000 people they put to the sword and gained victory. And for 80 years, they had peace. 80 years, God saw them and they saw God and they worshiped him and God blessed them. What an amazing testimony because there was a whole generation there that grew up only knowing of God's saving work and lived their entire lives worshiping and honoring God. They didn't have that immediate cycle. As soon as Ehud died, they went back to their sin. Maybe they learned a lesson that, wow, we saw God's victory twice here at Jericho. Once when they crossed the Jordan River with Joshua and now again with Ehud, Praise God. And maybe that lesson stuck with them a little bit longer. For 80 years, they learned that lesson. Moving on real quickly to the next story, uh, the third judge we come across. Unlike the other two judges that have several verses devoted to them, poor Shamgar gets one verse, but he does some incredible things with that one verse. Verse 31 of Judges 3. After Ehud, Ehud excuse me, came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Does not give us the time frame of when this happened, but after Ehud, so after the events in that that we just read, up came another judge. Doesn't tell us really where this judging happened, but does give us a clue that he struck down 600 Philistines. Now, the Philistines are a really confusing group of people that, even to this day, archaeologists have a hard time identifying where they came from. It seems like they came up from Egypt as a people group by way of Greece. Somehow, that's kind of how they're thinking. And I even read an article written in 2019 that talked about the genetic makeup of the Philistines, because there are cities on the very west coast of Israel on the Sea of Galilee, where we would kind of consider it the, the west side of town by the reservoir, on the coast of the reservoir. That area is filled with Philistine cities and landmarks and idols, and they have lots of burial grounds to the Philistines even to this day, and the archaeologists just really don't know exactly where they came from, but they were a thorn in the flesh of Israel constantly, constantly through the Old Testament. Uh, but Shamgar, who may have been out in that direction, had the privilege and honor with taking an ox goad. And if you don't know what an ox goad is, um, neither did I outside of Scripture. And you're never going to get any consensus. It basically is a stick that helps ox, encourages oxen to move along. And some have a, like a ball on it, some have a hook on it, some just have a point. Uh, some are more of a whip and some are more of a, a hard stick, but it's just something that pokes socks. Um, it is certainly not a weapon of war, unless you consider maybe kind of like a spear type of thing. Uh, but he took on 600 Philistines and killed them. He did. Not his army. He alone was an incredible warrior for God and delivered God's people out of the oppression that they were facing. That is a true Medal of Honor winner in Israel's war history. 600 Philistine warriors this guy put to death because God had called him to it. 
Now, I want to move us quickly to a take-home, because there are a few things that I want us to um, focus on to make sure that we are connected with as we apply this to our lives. Because if we remember when we looked at uh, a couple weeks ago, what's the whole point and purpose of these messages? The whole point and purpose of these messages and the stories written is a reminder and an encouragement not to follow suit. There's a purpose behind it. It's not just a funny story or a gross story or a story about victors and war, uh, war victories. It's there to remind us we can't lose focus like they did. While our hearts are prone to wander, we cannot let it gain victory over us, idolatry. We have to remain vigilant. We have to pay attention to our heart. There is never a day, a moment, a time where we can't let the guard down and let the world influence us without the filter of Christ in front of us constantly, constantly, constantly. And so it makes the Christian life a very active life. The Christian life is not a passive life. The Christian life is not a life that you can live on the sidelines, on the bench, on the seat. You can't watch the Christian life. You have to engage it. You have to actually be physically, mentally, spiritually involved in living the life. It's not passive. It just doesn't happen to you. You have to be aggressively tackling the issues that life brings you in a perspective that's Christian. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Why does he have to tell us that? Why does he have to tell us to be zealous and active in living the Christian life? Because we are prone to be lazy when it comes to spiritual disciplines. We are prone to forget them. We are prone to assume what I did 10 years ago counts today. We are prone to trust in the tradition that came before us. We're prone to trust in other people's work. We're prone to just go along with the crowd. We are prone to compromise. And if that is a shock to know that your nature outside of Christ is prone to sin, then I'm sorry to give you that news today. But we are prone to forgetting God. And so Paul has to say, stay zealous for this. Don't forget this. Don't lack in zeal. Be excited about serving God. Every time you hear an announcement about needing help, you should not be. That's not for me. I did it before. My time is done. No. It should be, Lord, how do I do this? Maybe I can't physically do this, but how do I show encouragement and excitement for those that can? How can I pray? How can I serve? Instead of immediately throwing up your hand and saying, oh, that's not for me, I can't. How do you engage in it? In fact, there are often times where you will hear a phrase, I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, I don't have the money, I don't have the... And you fill in the blank of reasons and excuses why your zeal has gotten weaker and weaker and weaker. God says you need to learn from the lesson of the judges. That when you give yourself over to sitting down and being the couch potato of Christian living, don't be shocked. Don't be surprised when the Holy Spirit enters your life with conviction and says, repent. Never be surprised. Never be shocked. Never be taken offense 
when God's word brings conviction because that is a sign and a moment where God is asking you, will you cry out for help? Or will you stick your heels in the dirt and say, God, you can't move me. I don't want to. I can't. We are always to be aggressively pursuing the spiritual fine things of this relationship. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, as we close and the band comes up, in Hebrews chapter 4, it gives us a great encouragement that when we are at a loss for energy, when we feel we can't, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne with grace and confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you have a time of need, cry out to God, just like the Israelites did. There's nothing embarrassing about that. What's embarrassing is the person who refuses to cry out to God for help. What's embarrassing is the person who says they live the Christian life, but yet they really don't have communion with God at all because they are just going through the motions. Don't go through the motions. Pursue God and His throne of grace, and He will indeed rescue you from all your heart's troubles and trials. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we cry out to you as our great God, the God of hope, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are our same God. Fill us with zeal and excitement for living the life. Fill us, Father, with convictions to resist temptation and idolatry. Help us, Father, not to compromise. Help us, Father, to be actively living and pursuing your throne of grace in our lives. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen.